It was Isaiah who said in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. He saw the angels crying out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Because he got an accurate view of who God was, he was able to get an accurate view of himself and humble himself saying, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he got an accurate view of God and he came in repentance because of his accurate view of himself, then we find that he also comes out with this cry and this prayer that says, when God says, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Then he says, Here am I. Send me. In a similar way this morning, we're going to discover another man who saw just a glimpse of God's glory, getting an accurate view of God. He got an accurate view of himself and his life was changed. We find Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 being this man. As you are turning to Daniel 10, I'd like to dismiss the children that are going to Children's Church to go ahead and uh, go with Mr. Spindler who will be teaching you. And so those children that are going to Children's Church can please be dismissed. As you find Daniel 10, I would like us to stand together, please, for the reading of God's Word. Here is another long chapter, 21 verses of Daniel, but it's certainly worth our time to read all of it. And I'll read aloud as you follow along in your own Bible. Daniel 10, beginning with verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was called Belshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. And he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, nor uh, meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I stood by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz, his body was like a barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet were burnished bronze in color, and the sound of, the, of his words was like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I, re- and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, and my, with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, and it made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for... For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? For now, as for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is there breath left in me. 
Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and he strengthened me and he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and I said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you what is noted in the scriptures of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Lord, we do pray that this morning your word would minister to our hearts and that we might know you in a greater way because of what your word reveals to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the great benefits of preaching expositorily or preaching through the Word of God is that you deal with chapters that you wouldn't necessarily preach if you had your choice. This is one of those passages of Scripture that is not easy to understand and in many ways it's even more difficult to preach. And yet it's a passage where God again reveals Himself to us. Daniel 11.32 gives us the theme of the whole book of Daniel when it says, But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. The purpose of the book of Daniel is that we might know God more. And we can certainly learn a great deal about God even through this encounter and through this passage. Daniel 10 through 12 is really the last and the most detailed of all of the prophecies of Daniel. We're going to discover a great deal of information, a lot that has to do with the past. But as I said, it's not so much about teaching us what's in store, what's in the future. It teaches us who holds the future in his hand. It teaches us more about God. When it comes to spirit beings, and I'm talking about angels and demons, there is much misinformation today, isn't there? And because of so much misinformation, there are one of two extremes to be avoided. The first extreme to be avoided is the extreme of a preoccupation with and really a fascination with spiritual beings. Whether that be through the New Age movement where there's a search for, uh, for spirit guides or whether it be in the church where there's a preoccupation with and fascination with spirit being and a real misunderstanding of spiritual warfare. That is the result of just this preoccupation, fascination. On the opposite side of preoccupation though with spirit beings is really another extreme to be avoided and that is the extreme of denial and avoidance. Many of us have gotten to the place where, place where we're so turned off with the speculation and preoccupation that really, really we deny that there's any spiritual warfare. We deny that there are angels or demons or enemies that we, are, uh, that we encounter on a regular basis. Daniel was a man who knew and walked with God for most of his life. And now as we come to the end of his days, the last days, we're talking about a man who he, here, as he speaks this, is a man who is in his mid to late 80s. He's a man who has had a tremendous balance and he has known God and yet there is neither a preoccupation with nor a denial of that which is spiritual. We find a man who does not become familiar with God and therefore casual with God. We find a man who, though he has had visions, though he has experienced wonderful things in his life before, he still comes to a place as a mid to late 80s year old man and he still has the fear of the Lord. He still has an awe and a reverence and a respect. Oh, there's nothing casual. There's nothing familiar about how he enters into God's presence. Daniel is encountering just a glimpse of the glory of God. He was granted through this vision great foresight into the plan of God for the people of God. And notice what it did. It disturbed him greatly. 
This kind of vision of God, this kind of awareness of spiritual warfare was not something that excited him and said, hey, get me enlisted, let me be involved. This is something that disturbed him because he began recognizing the greatness of God and how little, weak, insignificant he was himself. What is it that we learn about God from Daniel 10? First and foremost, we learn that God is to be feared. Hebrews 10.31 says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is no doubt that when we start understanding the greatness and the power and the strength of God, He ought to be feared, which means we ought to have a proper respect and reverence for Him. That fear and reverence for God is something that was exhorted by King Jehoshaphat toward his people in Second Chronicles. King Jehoshaphat is leading a short-lived, short-term revival. And as he leads this revival, he appoints judges in the nation. And as he gives the job to the judges, he says, Now therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, nor taking of bribes. In other words, see God for who He is, and because you see God for who He is, walking in a, in a sincere reverence and respect and awe of who God is, certainly ought to affect the way that you go, where there's no partiality, there's no iniquity. You need to be God-like judges, fearing God. Then he appoints other rulers within the kingdom. And when he appoints the other rulers, he commanded them, saying, Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a loyal heart. Folks, the fear of the Lord is something that must be pursued and understand, understood. There must not be a casual attitude in our relationship with God. So often we visualize or we think of God as being this father, loving, grandfatherly type of figure. And there is no doubt that He is a loving Father. There is no doubt that we can come to Him with every request and we can enter into His presence with thanksgiving. And yet, God, folks, this is God of the universe. This is God who has all power. This is God who controls kings and empires in history. This is a great and powerful God. And when we see Him, we ought to fall before Him in fear and reverence and respect, recognizing that He is so great and I'm so small. Daniel had learned what Job had challenged years before. Job had asked the question in Job 28, How do I find wisdom? Do I find wisdom in gold or silver or education? No, he answers the question in saying, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. He understood that a proper view and a proper reverence of God is necessary if a man's going to have wisdom. That's what the psalmist agreed to in Psalm 34:11. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. You're saying, Jeff, you have to be taught the fear of the Lord? Absolutely. Every one of us, if we're going to learn the fear of the Lord, we've got to be taught. And to be taught the fear of the Lord means that we have a right representation, a right presentation of who God is, so that we see God for who He is. Seeing God for who He is gives us a right idea of who we are. So many of us have no desire to worship the God of the Bible. So many times the God that we are worshiping is a God of our own imagination. And when we come to a point where we say, I can't worship a God like that, and then I put some sort of limitation or some sort of my imagination or thought or idea or speculation into it, folks, I'm not worshiping God for who He is. I'm worshiping God for who I want Him to be. You know what that's called? Idolatry. It's called making a God of my own choosing. So, you can be so foolish as to carve a God out of wood or stone, or you can be so foolish to carve a God in your own imagination, 
a God of your own thinking, either way, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Are we all together on that one? Daniel says the fear of God is what drove him in this place. He had a fear and a reverence for God, and we need to be taught that fear. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't want to know who God is. They want to go their own merry way. That's the most foolish thing you could possibly imagine. Did you know that the fear of the Lord is not only exhorted to us, it not only answers the question of Job of where can wisdom be found, it not only must be taught, but folks, the fear of the Lord promises these things. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be short. As Matt walked through his life, He could have easily had an accident. He could have been shot. He could have overdosed. He could have had prolonged or shortened days because of the lack of fear of God for him. Folks, we must fear the Lord and fearing the Lord will even offer to us prolonged days. Fear of the Lord or in the fear of the Lord, according to Proverbs 14, 26, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. And the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. To turn one away from the snares of death. You hear again the benefits of fearing God, knowing who He is and obeying, walking in His way. <coughs> provides the confidence that is needed for life. Provides a place of refuge, a fountain of life. Proverbs 19, verse 23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. You want life? You want satisfaction? you want good, then the best that you could pursue is the fear of God, knowing Him and walking with Him. Come on now. Some of us are glamorizing with the television view of sin, we're glamorizing what this world has to offer. We think that, well, if I just had enough money, if I just had enough women, if I just had enough prestige, if I just had the right man, the romantic kind of man that could be in my... If I just had these things, then life would be good and there would be satisfaction. There is never satisfaction in the way of transgression. The way of transgressors is hard. It promises all sorts of things. And the Bible says that the way, uh, that there is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of what? Death. So many people, and and I include myself in this, it is so easy to be led astray and to glamorize and to think that, well, if I just had this, and if I just had this, if I just, then I could be happy. Your happiness depends nothing on the circumstances around you. You're not going to be happy finding another wife. You're not going to be happy finding a different location to live. You're not going to be happy finding another job. Your happiness has nothing to do with the circumstances around you. Ultimately, your satisfaction will come in the fear of the Lord. To know Him for who He really is. To have a proper reverence and respect and worship and honor and submission to Him. And that is what we find of Daniel. A man who has the fear of God. By the way, one more. Proverbs 22, 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. And this is no health and wealth promise, but it is a promise that you walk in the ways of God. And that is a way of blessing. That is a way of life. That's a way to find riches and honor and, and not waste. Daniel is a man who learns to fear God in this passage. As he fears God, he's learning to fear God in the same way Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. Here's the glory of God. I bow before God because He is so great and then I yield to God. Lord, take me and use me. That fear of the Lord shows some things. The fear of God can be seen in three things in this passage. The fear of the Lord is gained when we recognize that God reveals truth. Verse 1. 
It was the third year of Cyrus the king and a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was Belshazzar and this message was true. Meaning, the message is true and it's going to happen no matter what anyone does to oppose it. When he starts recognizing that God reveals truth, truth is not something that is flimsy that we can make and mold into all that we want it to be. Folks, truth is a rock. And you can bash up against it all you want, but truth is the rock that will crush you because truth does not change. He says this message is true. The truth that he is revealing is an inspired truth according to verse 21. I tell you, what is noted in the Scripture of Truth, and when he talks about the Scripture of Truth, he's referring to God-written, God-inspired, God-given truth. Alright? It's firm. As he reveals this truth, he reveals future truth or the truth about a future conflict. There's a translation in verse 1 that is really unfortunate as far as the New King James version that I read because it's much more accurate to the Hebrew, to the original Hebrew when it says, the message was true and of great conflict. Instead of saying that it was a, the appointed time was long, it's really describing here a long, great warfare. What he is depicting and the reason that Daniel is so upset is he discovered the truth from God about the future of Israel that would include great conflict. Daniel is an old man. is desiring the deliverance of his people. And I remind you, in the third year of Cyrus, it had been two years since some of the exiles, Jew, Jewish people, had been sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. As they went, it did not go horribly well. There was all sorts of opposition against them and they didn't do well at first. Daniel was concerned about them, but he was even more concerned about the future. Because God had told him that in the future, there's going to be constant conflict for these Jewish people because they continue in ways of rebellion. Because they disobey and reject their Messiah, he said, there will be the conflict of Antiochus. Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes will come and, and annihilate and kill many Jews. And then there will be Nero in the future where there will be destruction and there was... Uh, not just devastation, and there was the, um, the uh, what is it called when you, torment. Not torment, but torture. The literal torture of Jewish people in the first century. You know, I am speculating, and I don't know for sure, but I am wondering if one of the reasons that Daniel came to such grief and misery and heartache was because in seeing the great conflict that was ahead for the Jews, perhaps he saw gas chambers where six million Jews would be heinously treated under the opposition of Hitler in Germany. Have you ever looked at those pictures? If you look at those pictures and you see skin and bones as these people have been starved, you, you see mass graves where there are numbers of God's chosen people gathered together, thrown together naked, not named in any way, and, and mass graves of them. Perhaps he looked ahead and was able to see the great conflict not only under Antiochus and under Nero and, and the great conflict that went through the ages, but perhaps he saw what happened in what we call World War II. Perhaps he saw and for sure he saw the great conflict of the future that will make World War II look like a Sunday school picnic. You say, Jeff, are you kidding me? Are you telling me that those atrocities will happen again? Folks, they just happen in our millennia, in our century. Just recently it happened. 
There is coming a time when an Antichrist will demonstrate such hatred and conflict with the Jews that he will set up a, he will set up a, a way to cut off heads publicly. Daniel had seen future conflict. He, he was disturbed by it. He was disturbed by this truth because the message was, this is true, it's settled, it's going to happen and you can't do anything about it. All he could do is go to God in prayer because he saw the truth of future conflict. But folks, he also, in this passage, saw the truth of spiritual conflict. What do you mean by spiritual conflict, Jeff? Do you mean that there are angels? Yes, there are angels. Angels such as Daniel envisioned and saw. He saw the appearance. He felt the touch when three different times they came and touched him. When he heard their voice as of many waters... Folks, there are angels that are servants of God. The New Testament tells us that they are ministers of God for the people of God to accomplish God's purpose in His people. Angels are just as real today as they were when they pronounced the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are angels. We don't see them. We don't become fascinated or preoccupied with them. But neither do we deny them. There are angels. You say, wait, Jeff, are you telling me that there are demons? Yes, there are demons. Just as in the day of Christ when He would cast out demons who brought oppression to people, bringing disease upon them, bringing torment upon those people, and, and sometimes even driving them to, uh, to craziness, there are demons today in the same way that there were demons then. So if demons are real, if angels are real, then are you telling me that, Jeff, their warfare is real? I'm not telling you that warfare is real. I'm just reiterating what the Scripture teaches. In Ephesians chapter 6, we are warned, and we read this earlier in the service today, we are warned that there is spiritual warfare. And we were warned that our weapons of warfare are not fleshly things, but the weapons that have been given to us are the character that God has entrusted, including the truth of His Word, the, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, our feet being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. All of these things are reminding us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. All of that is telling us, folks, that there is real spiritual warfare against real organized armies. What would those armies be? Well, God organizes His armies. Did you know that even the name, Lord of Hosts, indicates to us that He has organized His armies? Lord of Hosts. Does that, mean that, uh, that, does that mean that He's the Lord over all good people that are hostesses and hospitable? Is that what I, No. The Lord of hosts means that He is the captain over the armies. The host being the armies of God, the armies of His angels, and they're organized. How exactly? I don't know, but I know they're organized. And then I know that the Satan, take, taking those fallen angels, approximately one-third of the created angels, he takes them and he has them organized into different influences and different power and different, you know, things. You say, all right, Jeff, well, if there's real spiritual warfare, what is it? Real spiritual warfare is not you giving a formula prayer to get rid of an infirmity. There is nothing formulaic about what we just read in Daniel 10. As a matter of fact, in Daniel 10, the spiritual warfare that was going on is something that Daniel wouldn't have even known about until God chose to reveal it to him so he understood that there really is battle that goes on and the battle belongs to the Lord. Daniel didn't know what was going on. We don't find him giving a nice little formula to help the angels. We don't find him reciting the nice little prayer that someone had given to him to surely 
be able to bring in the victory. The victory of this spiritual warfare has nothing to do with you and me. It has everything to do with a great God who is powerful and able to accomplish all things. You say, well, Jeff, what is that spiritual warfare? The spiritual warfare are the demons who are in opposition to God's people. Their opposition to the people of God and to the plan of God was found in the book of Job when they came to try to bring him to discouragement and defeat and even cursing God. Satan had come desiring to defeat and destroy Job. Remember? What did Job, what was Job's responsibility? Cast out the demon of destruction? Come on now. His responsibility was to trust God even though he might be slain and die. Are we together on this? Trust God because God gives the victory. Opposition would include the opposition that was given to Peter. Peter, Jesus says, hey Peter, Satan has desired you that he might sift you like we. He wants to ruin you, Peter. That's why Peter would later be able to come back and say, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to devour and kill you. Are you getting this, Christian? He is opposed to your growth. He's opposed to your strength. He's opposed to your encouragement. He's, impo- he's opposed to your ministry of sharing the gospel and discipling believers. He's opposed to you in every way he could be opposed to you. Well, how does that opposition come? Primarily with this. The battle between truth and error. Spiritual warfare is ultimately the battle between truth and error. It's a battle that's going on in your mind and in your thinking constantly. You say, Jeff, how do I engage in spiritual warfare? Certainly, you take up the whole armor of God. You use the weapons that He has given. And you remember that the main weapon He gave us was the weapon of truth, the Word of God. He gave us truth because He knew that the devil's main weapon was the weapon of lying. He was a deceiver from the beginning. He's always lied. How about to Eve? Does anyone remember when Satan came to Eve? How did he come? He came slithering in And with his forked tongue, he whispers lies, trying to get her to doubt the promises and the truthfulness of God. See, it's a battle between truth and error. Do you see it? And Eve gave in and she fell for the lie because she didn't take that truth the way that God had told her to follow that truth and live by it. All right, how about another example? Jesus. Jesus was facing opposition, spiritual warfare from the devil who wanted to defeat God's purposes and God's people by defeating Jesus. So what did he do? He came with three different lies. He would even take promises and attach verses to his lies, right? So he would do everything he can to somehow bring lies and somehow make those lies seem like they're true. That's why we've got to be sober and be vigilant. It's because he doesn't come and say, hey, listen to my big fat lie. I'd really like to ruin your life. He comes as an angel of light. And as an angel of light, he comes appearing to be light, appearing to be truth, guiding us away. He knows the Bible. And that's why you need to know the Bible so that it's not taken out of context and so you're not led astray by a false teacher or by the, uh, the thoughts of your head where the devil comes to defeat you. So Jeff... What is spiritual warfare, folks? The spiritual warfare is a battle of truth against error. As a matter of fact, we are even warned in the book of Timothy about the doctrines of demons. We're not so much warned about their talons that can dig in to our shoulders and our car hoods and ruin, you know, give us a bad day because our car won't start. That's not what we're warned about. 
Certainly, that's a good picture that helps us be aware that that spiritual warfare is real. But the warfare that He comes is, uh, He brings in lies. And He will do everything with His lies to oppose God's purposes and to oppose God's people. That's why we are to take on salvation. That's why we're to take on righteousness. That's why we're to take on character and the Word of God, which is truth. This is primarily a war between truth and lies. It's primarily, certainly, it's the opposition of Satan to the purposes of God and the people of God. And yet, there's one more thing I need to talk about, about this real warfare. It's a real warfare that is guaranteed victory. The outcome is not in doubt. And I'm not just talking about the warfare in Revelation 12 that's described a future war in heaven when the devil will be defeated and the dragon will be slain and thrown into the pit. I'm not just talking about that outcome not being in doubt. I'm talking about the outcome in your life. It's not in doubt. And listen, the outcome that is not in doubt is not dependent upon your abilities to wage war. It's dependent upon the Lord of hosts, the captain of the host, the one who fights our battles for us. If we believe Him, if we trust Him, if we obey Him, folks, greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Amen? Amen. The battle that we're engaging in in the souls of people around us is a battle of truth versus lie. The spiritual warfare that we're engaged in is a war where we're not supposed to take this soldierly, manly, hey, got a rough everyone up attitude. You remember what the Word of God says in Timothy? He says, the servant of the Lord must not strive. I'm engaged in warfare, but that doesn't mean that I'm supposed to go around beating everyone up. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if peradventure, God would grant them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. The warfare we're engaged in is we gently, meekly, lovingly guiding people and teaching people in truth rather than beating them up trying to think that somehow they'll stay away from the lie. No, come on. That's what our spiritual warfare is. You know what was very real about what Daniel was exposed to? His eyes were open so that he understood that there was a real war over the influence that would be granted upon Persia and Greece and the enemies of the people of God. He knew, even in, in uh, chapter 11 and verse 2, he knew that there was warfare that was going on for Darius, the king. You see, there was the angel who came and tried to influence Darius toward the truth and tried to encourage him to be good to the people of God and deliver them so that they might go back to their promised land fulfilling the purposes of God. Then there was the demon. The demon came and he did everything he could to influence Darius down a wrong path. Same thing happened for Persia. The battle that was engaged here where the angel says, I was held up. The angel was held up, sir, because there was spiritual war. But the... But, but was Daniel's prayer any contribution to the victory? I haven't read anything in here that indicates that it was a contribution to the victory. You know why? God says through the angel, the prayer that you made was heard the first day you prayed it. Certainly, you need to pray, you need to be faithful, you need to be vigilant, you need to continue on in those things. But God's victory is not dependent upon our prayers, especially. Not how long we pray, not how fervent we pray, not even the words that we pray. God's victory is not dependent upon our prayers. Our peace, 
Our trust, our encouragement is certainly dependent upon our prayers as we pour our heart out to God. But the victory is assured because God is powerful. And God sends Michael to deliver and so they could come with this, with this answer to prayer. Alright. God is to be feared. God is to be feared because God reveals truth and He reveals this truth in such a way that Daniel responds with fear and awe. I mean, he bows before God. He's without strength. As a matter of fact, the others who would have seen this revelation, they fled. They got out of there. But God is also to be feared because God answers prayer. God answers prayer. He gets there. He prays. He pours his heart out to God. And it talks about the fasting and the way that he expressed the grief. You say, what is all of this emotion about? Here's what the emotion's about. He was granted a vision into the future conflict of Israel. That vision of the future conflict of Israel stirred up so much mourning and grief and fear for him that he's starting to go to God and saying, God, deliver your people. God, be merciful to your people. This is what they're yet to experience and his heart is broken. And he is so heartsick and heartbroken about it that he can't think about eating. He can't think about the enjoyments of life, even cleaning himself up and anointing himself. He does everything, devotes all of his time and attention to going before God and saying, God, this is true, it can't be changed, but God, would you deliver your people? Would you give them a heart to follow after your ways? It's the same prayer that we find in Daniel 9. He's trusting God. And you know what? God answers. And when God answers that prayer, He sends revelation so that He might understand how God's purpose is seen in all of this. God answers prayer. God reveals truth. And then finally... God strengthens saints. That's the last thing in here to find great encouragement in. God strengthens saints. Here's someone who is so at the bottom of himself, so overwhelmed by circumstances, so overwhelmed by what he sees that he falls down and he says, I can retain no strength. I have no energy. I have no ability to continue on. I'm heartsick. I'm heartbroken. I've seen this angel and it's overwhelmed me. It puts me in great fear. I recognize how weak I am. And guess what? When we recognize how weak we are, His strength is made perfect in our weakness. That's where the fear of the Lord is the first step to wisdom, to honor and blessing and prolonged days. Folks, it's the fear of God that we desperately need. The fear of God is dependent upon God to give victories, not some nicely written poetic prayer that someone else said, and I like it so much that I kind of say it every day. I mean, where does the idea of say this prayer for 30 days and you will overcome and be spiritually victorious, where does that come from? It, it certainly doesn't come from Scripture. Where does the idea, a wrong view of spiritual warfare. Now, Jeff, are you avoiding? Are you denying spiritual warfare? I hope you've understood this morning. I recognize that warfare is very real. And it's a war between the forces of good and evil. It's a war between Satan and the, and the kingdom of God. It's a battle that's going on for the hearts and souls of men today. And that war is primarily truth versus lie. And the battle is primarily won when we hold forth the banner of truth. The more that we give truth into circumstances and situations, the more the victory is assured. I, I could go into so many different examples, but the time forbids me right now. You know what David thought? David, when he thought truthfully about God's promises to call him to be the king, he just went. David went and he followed and obeyed God and God blessed and God gave victory and God led him in so many ways. When he started believing a lie, here was a lie for him. 
You're not really going to become the king. They're going to kill you. Eventually, you're going to be annihilated and killed. Saul's going to hunt you down. He's going to kill you. You know what Daniel did or David did? He took matters into his own hand. He ran off to a kingdom. He becomes a terrorist and a raider because he fell for the spiritual war. He falls for the lie instead of the truth. You say, Pastor, what's the truth that I need to believe? I don't know. But I do know that that truth will come to a place where you have confidence and trusting God because He is so great. It's called the fear of the Lord. And that fear of the Lord will guide us in wisdom. It will guide us in blessing. It's the fear of the Lord. A proper view of who He is and of His truth and a reliance upon Him and not myself. Daniel was a great statesman. He was a great political power. He comes down to the end of his life and he recognizes that with all of my life investment in Babylon and now under the Medes and the Persians, I can't do anything to change the future outcome of the war with Israel. I mean, their conflict is going to be great. I just pour, I pour my heart out to God and I ask God to be merciful. He came to a place of weakness recognizing God's strength. That's the place we need to come. A place that says, certainly, Lord, I want to be obedient. I want to follow you. And yet, in obedience and following you, there's a recognition that, God, the battle belongs to you. And some trust in horses. Others trust in chariots. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Thank God that ours is the victory. One of my favorite hymns is, I heard an old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. How He gave His life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about His groaning of His precious blood atoning. Then I repented of my sin and won or found the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus. Would you turn with me, please, to number 473 in your hymnal. We're going to pray in just a moment. But before we do, I want to sing rousingly, recognizing that the battle belongs to the Lord and that He is our victory. I want us to recognize the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's stand together, please, as we sing... Really, again, all the verses. 473.